This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Good evening, everyone. As Emilio pointed out, uh, I'm indeed an immigrant myself, uh, born and raised in El Salvador, and I just want to tell you that it's actually my honor to be this evening uh, talking to you all. And the topic that I was asked to address is basically one of analyzing what are the assets and the liabilities of being immigrants uh, in this time in history in the world, and particularly history here in the United States of America. Uh, let me begin by saying that the organization I am now uh, responsible for directing, it's indeed a fairly new organization, only founded in 2004. And the fact that, that it is a rather unique organization in the sense that there aren't really that many organizations that are specifically founded as a joint effort by organizations that are actually led by immigrants themselves. Immigrants from Mexico, all over Mexico, from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, Brazil, Colombia, and several other countries in Latin America. It's, it's actually indeed a, a tremendous opportunity from my point of view. But what it is surprising is that there are more organizations like this. And the reason I say that is because Latin American and Caribbean immigrants in the United States actually happen to be a very large portion overall of the foreign-born population residing in the United States of America today. Uh, as a matter of fact, according to the census, U.S. Census Bureau, there were, as of the end of 2006, a little more than 20 million people residing in the United States of America who were born somewhere in Latin America or the Caribbean. And that, I mean, represented, according to the U.S. Census, about 54% of all foreign-born population in this country. So I want to point out to you the fact that contrary to public perception, people of Latin American origin, including, and I would, should say, you know, for the most part, Mexicans, are not indeed such a large percentage of the foreign-born population as one may be led to think by the way in which the issue of immigration has been covered in the media and has been debated in the halls of our United States Congress. As a matter of fact, I mean, just to be fair, about 46% of the foreign-born population came from several other regions in the world, most importantly, uh, Southeast Asians, Middle Eastern you know, communities, and then everyone else in the world. I mean, and again, they made up 46 percent, according to U.S. Census, by the end of 2006. Now, I happen to believe that we are living a rather crazy, challenging times for immigrants and for migration altogether. And, and let me just make clear. Migration is nothing new. It has been happening from day one. I mean, as, as soon as we know that human beings were able to walk around, we've been migrating. And as a matter of fact, you may even be surprised to know that even though there are altogether about 37, 38 million people living in the United States of America at least, who are foreign-born, proportionally speaking, that number of people is not yet surpassing 
the highest moment in our history when it comes to the relationship between foreign-born and native-born population. Because we had actually a different period in our history, specifically the period between 1890 and 1910, in which the percentage of the foreign-born population came to be close to 16%. Today, even with the numbers I already mentioned, the percentage is more or less 14.5%. So contrary, I don't know how many of you may have heard, you know, Lou Dobbs every afternoon in CNN, but if you have heard, you know, Lou Dobbs, you may be thinking that we are literally being invaded and taken over, you know, by particularly Mexicans, by immigrants altogether. And again, the reality is that that's not the case. But what I want to really get to is the fact that in previous moments of tremendous expansion in the system of interdependence among nations, namely other moments of what we now call globalization, interestingly, the movement of people was happening very much without any difficulties. I don't know how many of you have studied immigration law, but as a matter of formal, comprehensive approach, we did not have an immigration law in this country until 1924. We did have exclusionary laws in place, such as the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act, which goes even farther back you know, than the first adoption of an immigration law in 1924. So for all practical purposes, until the beginning of the 1900s, we very much function as an open border you know, country. So when you find somebody in this country who is third, fourth, or fifth generation residing in the United States of America, U.S. born, who would tell you my great-great-grandparents came to this country the right way. They did not violate any laws. Of course they didn't. There weren't any laws to be violated. And that's very different than what is happening now. Because, in my opinion, the very system we call globalization, especially in the way it has taken place over the last 30, 40 years, that very system engenders migration, more so than at any other time in the history of humankind. And I will not necessarily spend much time talking about uh, migration at the worldwide uh, level. I will actually focus on speaking mostly about Latin American migration and immigration into the United States of America. I forgot to time myself, so please remind me when I'm close to coming to the end. Um, Latin Americans in the U.S. are nothing new. Mexicans in the U.S. are nothing new. As a matter of fact, for a large mass of so-called Mexicans, being in the U.S. was never a matter of crossing borders. It was the opposite. You know, the borders cross them. Because let's remember that less than 200 years ago, lots of places we now call, you know, the United States of America used to be Mexico. And, and that's something that, believe it or not, I mean, I have done lots of public speaking over the years, and I remember very well in Saugus, Massachusetts, for a summer I took as a job, I mean, to go every every week, you know, to do at least one presentation at a high school. And I did find kids in high school who would ask me, why is it that there are so many Mexicans in California? Well, you know, it used to be Mexico, you know, but a lot of people don't remember. But the fact is, a lot of people has indeed come to the United States of America. As a matter of fact, going back to the Census Bureau, in the year 1970, the U.S., uh, Census Bureau tell us that there were, in 1970, about 1.8 million people 
who were foreign born in Latin America. Okay? As it is the case today, it was the case then, most of those folks were Mexicans. Okay? Of that 1.8 million, about 42% back then were Mexicans. 37% though were from the Caribbean, which is an interesting figure. 6% were Central Americans, and about 14% were South Americans. Now, in the year 2005, according to the U.S. Census, there were 19 million you know, Latin Americans and broke down, using the same categories, 58% Mexicans, 17% Caribbeans, 13% Central Americans, and 13% South Americans. Now, if you look at the actual numbers, back in 1970, 1.8 million to 19 plus million in the year 2005, that's a growth equivalent to 882%. Now, why have those people come to the U.S.? There is actually a, a formal explanation, you know, that more or less says that people come because of lack of economic opportunity, because of natural disasters, you know, that occur uh, in countries in Latin America that makes people emigrate. People leave also because of political instability. You know, when, for example, in Chile, our very own government promoted a coup d'etat against an elected government in Chile, you know, a lot of Chileans emigrated. A lot of people emigrated following the invasion in the Dominican Republic in 1965. A lot of Central Americans emigrated when we got our noses into Central America. And so, clearly, instability does, you know, make a lot of people emigrate. However, that alone doesn't tell us the full picture. Beginning pretty much in 1980, a tremendous comprehensive change began to take place in Latin America. And it was, if you want, the coming into full implementation of a vision of the world that was actually crafted in New Hampshire. It was actually crafted in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. You know, a vision of the world as a single integrated, you know, marketplace. And in our case, in Latin America, that began to come much more clearly into force, you know, beginning in the 1980s. What I mean by that is that it doesn't matter which country you pick. Now, Mexico obviously has the particular characteristic of being right next to uh, the United States of America, but it could be any other country. Cable TV you know, began to be introduced in the 1980s. The internet, email, you know, began to come full force, you know, into Latin America. The invasion by Hollywood in Latin America, the expense of a lots of our own, you know, native productions uh, in Mexico or Colombia or Cuba, you know, we began to be totally, you know, seduced, you know, with Hollywood production. The content of the magazines that people read, the content of newspapers, articles, always talk about, you know, the, the better place, the place in the north. So the fact that migration from Latin America to the United States has happened in a very strong manner over the last 30, 40 years, which is the same period of time in which globalization has come in full force, and the so-called technology revolution has also taken over, has made migration much more natural, you know, in this moment in history. And, and, and just to tell you a, an interesting anecdote that I experienced a couple, actually about three years ago, I was getting off a plane coming into Washington, D.C., and I see this huge sign getting out of the American Airlines Terminal in the Washington National Airport that said, welcome to a world without borders. 
Okay? Now, the advertisement was not a political statement. It was an advertisement by a technology company known as SAP. I don't know if you have seen their advertisement all over. If you go actually to O'Hare Airport or Midway Airport, you'll see a lot of advertisement by them. They never came back you know, with that same advertisement, welcome to a world without borders. But the point I'm trying to make is, when it comes to goods, when it comes to money, when it comes to ideas, we are already living in a world without borders. I mean, many of you here probably already practice that, but I'm sure many of your parents do. You can invest in any stock market in the world today pretty much in a matter of seconds. The clothing that you are wearing tonight if I were to ask you to take off everything that was manufactured abroad, you will be naked. And so, globalization indeed, when it comes to goods and capital and technology, it's a world without borders. But see, contrary to other times in history, when it comes to people moving, we don't have a world without borders. And that's a problem because this is what I meant earlier when I said that migration and migrants are enduring a difficult moment in the history of humankind because the movement of goods, the movement of capital, the movement of technology only tell us the beginning of the rest and the rest is that there will be movement of people but we refuse to acknowledge that that is part of the equation. And instead of acknowledging that the movement of people, in this case people from Latin America, which is frankly, in many ways, the backyard of the United States of America, whether we like it or not, that movement of people from that part of the world, it's only common sense that it's happening. And yet, as I said, we refuse to recognize that. In a minute, I will try to address some ideas as to why that is the case. Now, let me uh, just actually point out that this resistance to acknowledge, you know, the movement of people, in part, it has to do with issues of identity. You know, we have been growingly aware of the presence of particularly Latino, Mexicano immigrants in the United States. But in some parts of the United States of America, this is all news. You know, back in California, in the 1970s, we were already experiencing, I mean, a huge change, demographic change, driven largely by people from Mexico and from the rest of Latin America. As a matter of fact, in 1970, the population in California was about 68, 70% white, okay, in 1970. But by 1990, the change was already huge. By 1990, the population of California was only 56% white. Now, when you look at the changes that happened in California in terms of public policy, especially Proposition 13, you may want to research that particular part, dramatically changed the way public funding for schools, for recreation, and for local police forces changed dramatically. And it didn't just change. I mean, they kind of changed it and lock it up because they approved, next to the reduction in, income, in, in property taxes in California through Proposition 13, they also made it extremely difficult to anybody ever going back and changing that. Now, when you analyze the change from the point of view of the demographic changes that have been happening in California, you cannot but conclude you know, that since beginning pretty much in the 1970s, 
public schools was a matter of educating people of color, African-American, Asians, and Latinos. Why would you want everybody paying generously into taxes that would have made possible to provide top-notch education to people who weren't white? So there is a content here that I'm getting to, you know, which is essentially you know, the racial connotation of how migration becomes throughout the last 30, 40 years such a heated issue of debate. Now, not only did California lead the way in actually defunding you know, very critical areas of public policy such as education, but in the mid-1990s, California also led the charge nationally in as far as attacking the illegal alien, okay? And the charge took the form again of a proposition, Proposition thir uh, uh, 187. Now, Proposition 187 was largely known to be a proposition written in a way in which it was going to be found inconstitutional in the courts. And that's exactly what happened. It passed, you know, with the majority of the, you know, voters' support, but it got stuck in the courts. Interestingly, though, just like Proposition 13 became a matter of federal policy throughout the 1980s, in the 1990s, Proposition 187 was relaunched nationally. And it led in 1996 to the passage of, at that moment in history, the most restrictive immigration law that we had ever seen in nearly 70 years. So all I'm getting to is the demographic changes that we've been experiencing explain many of the public policy changes and the perceptions that have been generated about immigrants. Now, I also want to say Clearly, these laws are supposed to affect immigrants altogether. Yet, the people who really receive, you know, the worst part, the strongest wave, in as far as actual implications, actual practical implications of these changes in the law, happen to be indeed Mexicanos, South Americans, you know, Central Americans, Caribbean nationalities. That's not to say that everybody else doesn't. I'm just saying that the worst you know, side of this uh, loss effect, I mean, is felt deeply by Latin American immigrant communities. Now, we could go on and on in trying to explain uh, the changes because, to be honest with you, you know, we love to think that we are a nation of immigrants. As a matter of fact, you know, when polling is done on the question, do you believe that we are a nation of immigrants? 75, 80% of the population approve that we are a nation of immigrants. You know? Yet, if you really go back and look at the history, we were never really that nice you know, to immigrants. And, and we can go back all the way to the founding moments of the nation. It's not new. I mean, it didn't begin to happen in the 19, late 1800s and early 1900s. I mean, we can go back to Benjamin Franklin times, you know, when he was one of the first people to actually politically organize against those foreigners that we don't like, they're going to ruin our way of life. And he was referring back then to the Germans, you know, because they were Catholic and they didn't speak English. But the history repeat over and over again, okay? So being mean against immigrants purely out of xenophobia, out of fear for the one I don't know, as well as being mean against people who happen to be people belonging to minority racial groups, frankly, none of those two things are new. Let's remember we are a nation that brought by force millions of foreigners who never meant to come to this country. 
okay, from the very early moments. That's why we had a slavery. You know, people from Africa didn't come willingly. They came by force. And so in many ways, these issues of racism and xenophobia in as far as how we treat foreigners have always been present in our history and they're not new. So I couldn't possibly tell you the full story as to why are we getting mean lately, you know, against people especially of Latin American, Mexican origin, just by telling you that, you know, it's all about racism and xenophobia. I mean, they play a part, but there is something new that is happening and that it's been happening at least since the early 1980s forward. Our so-called American way of life has been changing, and not necessarily for the better. You know, what I mean by that is, back in 1970, a household where there was one income earner who was working in manufacturing could actually provide for himself and his family. That household could even send the kids to college back then on that standard, okay? Since then to the present, totally different story. Back in 1970, we didn't have a crisis when it comes to health insurance or access to health care. Back in the 1970s, we were mostly happy with public schools. Of course, I mean, we have defund them, because I told you, I mean, Proposition 13 in California became the rule of the nation throughout the 1980s. So what I would argue is that the country has been experiencing a gradual, very slow process of growing deterioration in terms of socioeconomic standards which can also be measured in the way we distribute wealth and the way we distribute income in the United States of America. So in a time in history, 20, 30 years, in which we've been experiencing this process of worsening standards, measured as well by the amount of debt that the average household in this country commands, at the same time, the Latin American immigrants have been growingly in presence in the U.S., believe me, doesn't necessarily put us in a good footing. Because for people who refuse to accept that we do have serious social economic challenges to face, it is easier to blame one that cannot defend themselves or oneself and use, in this case, immigrants as, as scapegoats. This is exactly what's been happening in over the last few years. And we have come to a point in our history where those folks who back in the mid-1970s were proposing very significant changes in public policy in California, who later became accepted throughout the country, those people, believe me, didn't do what they did out of the goodness of their heart. Those are people, if you actually trace you know, their history, those are people who, believe me, are driven by hate, by fear, not by love or acceptance. And those folks have always been a very small minority. But over the last 10, 15 years, they have really gained tremendous strength including very strong representation in our very own United States Congress. And essentially, they have convinced us, convinced the nation, that the foreigner of today, the immigrant of today, especially those uneducated, dirty, smelly Mexicans, are bad news for the country. They are a threat. That's the idea, you know, that they've been systematically planting. Now, you may say I'm being extremist. Look, if you go back and analyze the naturalization application 
for an immigrant to become a United States citizen in 1970. And then you look at the same application today. Not only is it many more times more complicated, let alone expensive, but the backlogs, you know, the time that you have to wait to become a U.S. citizen have also been systematically increasing. Now, if you really buy the notion that they are a threat, why are you going to make it easy for them to become, you know, U.S. citizens? But the citizenship application is only one example. You can go and pick any single service that is provided by immigrants. This is every single application for benefits that an immigrant can apply for in terms of immigration policy, and believe me, it's a lot harder now than it was in 1970. And it has to do again with this notion that the foreigners of today are bad news. They're a threat. Now, not only have they succeeded to pretty much convince us that that is the case, but following the horrendous events of September 11, 2001, on top of that wave that was already coming down on us, then we have to deal, you know, with issues of national security. And so immigrants are not only a threat because of the cultural invasion or because of the so-called cost that they impose on society, but they also become suspicious of terrorism. And so the picture has gotten, as I said, very complicated, especially if you happen to be somebody who comes you know, from countries that don't fit with the self-image that we still have to this day about who is an American or what is to be an American. Now, not everything is bad news, you know, because clearly there is a lot of people out there who don't really buy okay, the notion that it is dangerous from a national security point of view to actually eat chips and salsa. Okay? There is a lot of people out there who don't believe that eating a burrito or a taco presents a threat to national security. Okay? And there is a lot of people out there who have really come to befriend you know, immigrants, including those dirty Latinos, and believe that they are nice folks, okay? And, and this is happening very much, you know, at the local level. As a matter of fact, from an economic point of view, back in 2004, Hispanic business actually measured the annual purchasing power of Latinos altogether. And back in 2004, they found that we were consuming at the rhythm of $700 billion a year. I was trying to update the figure preparing for this presentation today, and there is no updated figure, but there is a lot of speculation, including by the Wall Street Journal, that the actual purchasing power of Latinos in this country is neighboring $1 trillion. Now, if you ever call Verizon or AT&T or Comcast or uh, AAA and you found, you know, a message that says, para español apriete el dos, you know, it's not so much, you know, that they are so incredibly loving of cultural diversity, <laughs> you know, it has more to do with the fact that Latinos are voracious consumers. And so that is making a lot of business adapt. A few years ago, I had the fortune to briefly serving in a corporate advisory board, the best paying board I've ever served. And believe me, I was stunned, I mean, to see how incredibly surgical they are when it comes to analyzing Latino consumers. They know, for example, what kind of salsa Colombians like versus what kind of salsa people from Jalisco, Mexico like. They know exactly what chips sell better 
in Dominican neighborhoods in the U.S. as opposed to Peruvian neighborhoods in New York, okay? So the fact that we have become such an important consumer base, it's indeed something that goes well, you know, for us. I mean, for immigrants altogether, but especially for Latinos. When you think about the fact that by and large, Latino immigrants, as well as the rest of immigrants in this country, are fairly young people. According to the U.S. Census, we are pretty much within the range of 24 and 38 years old. That's, that's where the biggest bulk of immigrants in this country, especially Latinos, are today. Now, that's full employment, employment age. And a lot of employers in this country know that very well. Believe me, if it weren't for immigration and for immigrants from Latin America in particular, industries like agriculture wouldn't be profitable. Services industries, you know, like making beds in hotels, would not be profitable, you know, without the injection of immigrant labor in the U.S. economy. But in the midst of these opportunities, you know, that clearly are happening, you know, in the country, and, and let me just make a brief parenthesis here. Last year, there was a huge, very high-intensity debate in the U.S. Congress about immigration policy reform, okay? And believe me, it wasn't really the kind of debate that, for example, I supported. Because I really felt that what was on the table in as far as immigration policy reform really was terrible. But even though people like me opposed that particular Senate bill last year, who actually killed that bill was not people like me. I mean, who really killed that bill were people who considered that the only solution to so-called illegal immigration in this country is round them all up put them in jail, and send them back home. That's the only solution. I mean, Tom Tancredo, you know, the guy who was even trying to run for president on the Republican side, that's his recipe for solution. Enforce the laws, you know, round them all up, send them back home. Now, those were the people who really killed, you know, that bill. But what's important to mention is that a lot of the reason why they were able to, in the end, kill that bill is because they convinced the political elites in the country that if you wanted to have a good chance at becoming the next president of the United States of America, you had to be anti-immigrant. Now, it was very interesting to see that the least anti-immigrant Republican is the one who is pretty sure to become the Republican nominee for the presidential race this year. And I think that that speaks also about how, in reality, isolated, you know, the people who argue for extreme solutions to the immigration policy questions that we face as a nation happen to be. And it also speaks about hope, and it speaks about the importance that there is indeed a lot of tolerance and acceptance, you know, throughout U.S. society. Because people tend to get it, I mean, from a common sense point of view. And I think we really need to uh, seize that opportunity and really make the debate about immigration more about, you know, a debate regarding how do we build a better society, where frankly, we need immigrants, whether we like it or not. As a matter of fact, 2008 is a year when a very important change has begun to happen. The so-called baby boomers are beginning to reach 62 years or older. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there will be 77 million people going into retirement beginning this year for the next 22 years. 
That's about 3.5 or so million people per year for the next you know, uh, uh, 22 years. Now, where are we going to get 3.5 million people to actually fill in the fact that these folks are going out? Okay? Now, this is another opportunity, but also another challenge. On May 17th of last year, the U.S. Census Bureau released information about population growth in the United States of America. Turns out that white folks are reproducing themselves at a rate of 0.3%. African Americans are reproducing themselves at a rhythm of 1.3%. Asians in this country, people of Asian heritage, are reproducing at 3.4%. And people of Latin American heritage are reproducing themselves at 3.5%. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, I mean, to make a projection over the next 25 years and realize that at that overall rate of growth, there is no way we can produce 3.5 million people at working age per year over the next you know, 20 or 30 years uh, to come. And here is the issue in which I want to begin to come to a close, at least on my presentation, so that we can have you know, question and answers. The people who drive migration Contrary to anything we may inadvertently be thinking, they are still human beings. You know, the people who have immigrated to this country through the legal channels or otherwise, they are indeed human beings who have emotions not different than anyone else, who have aspirations and desires not different than anybody else. Yet, in other parts of the world, this began even earlier, but it's beginning to take root in the U.S. as well. Rich societies, such as you know, European nations, such as Canada, such as Australia, you know, such as the United States of America, Canada, they are, and have already been for quite a while, experiencing a very precarious overall demographic trend. They are becoming all folks countries. I mean, there are some cases that are extremely acute, like Germany, like Japan, like Italy, like Spain. You know, they are rapidly facing a reality where there are more people going out into retirement than there are new people joining the labor force. And again, this is not new. There is a very fun set of essays written in the summer of 2001 by Peter Drucker for The Economist, which spoke, spoke about the next society. And you know what he said about migration? He said, migration is an absolute need, you know, for these countries. Yet, since they are not people who are like us, at least the way we think of ourselves in terms of these countries, we are to face a huge challenge, a huge dilemma between our needing them, but our not wanting them. I mean, that's the dilemma, you know, that rich countries are already facing. And in the context of this dilemma, there has been a pragmatic trend throughout Europe, and surely is taking root in the U.S., where we are willing as a society to say, we need those people, but we don't really want them. Now, how do you fix that? Here is where the notion of converting 
every immigrant in the country today, already here, as well as those who will come in the future, into temporary workers. Because by converting them into temporary workers, you deal with the labor need that you have for them. But you deny the fact that they are not a commodity. They are human beings. And as human beings, like everyone else, we, for example, flourish better when we work in the context of a family unit as opposed to alone, okay? Immigrants are no different. But by making them guest workers, we pretend that they can be fine just being workers, okay? And so this is in many ways the greatest threat that we are facing in the U.S. and that the world entirely is facing when it comes to how to best reconcile the role of migration in this complex world in which we are living in today. Let me just move to the end by saying that the challenges that we face, especially Latino immigrants, are no less complicated in our countries of origin. Because as much as immigration implies changes, you know, in a country like the US, they also imply very deep changes in our countries of origin. This change that I'm talking about is a two-way street. You can go you know, throughout Mexico, you can go throughout Central America, the Caribbean, and you will find very rapidly happening cultural changes in almost every aspect of life, resulting from migration. And frankly, it shouldn't be a surprise. If you go to a state like Zacatecas or Michoacán in Mexico, you're talking about 50% of the population of those states no longer living there. They are living abroad. You go to a country like El Salvador, you have 25% of the population residing abroad. You go to Jamaica, it's about 35 or so percent of the population living abroad. And remember, this act of emigration has happened in the very context I described to you already earlier. Namely, this moment in the history of humankind where physical distances and locations apart from one another are much closer than we ever saw them before because of technology. And questions of what is the role of large segments of population that used to be our neighbor, neighbors, no longer being there but wanting to be involved with what goes on in the country, it's complicated. And governments in, in Latin America resist the changes no less than we do here. And even when we say that we understand and we are going to accommodate, for example, Mexicans struggle for years to gain the right to vote from abroad. Well, you know, they finally granted the right to vote from abroad, but it's so incredibly complicated that for all practical purposes, only a small minority of Mexicans actually have the ability to exercise the right to vote from abroad. And again, I mean, the problem is we don't have single standards for these things. For example, the United States government helped Iraqis vote from here when elections were held in Iraq. But if I were to go ask the U.S. government to help me organize, you know, the Mexican participation in the elections in Mexico, I wouldn't get the same kind of support. So double standards are a big danger in this reality, both in the country of destination as well as in the country of origin. Now, I also want to touch on something that Emilio and I were actually talking about right before coming into here. Just as much as we resist the importance of migration for our you know, good functioning as a society and a good functioning of the world, as a matter of fact, we also do the same. 
in the countries of origin and in the countries of transit of migrants. For example, when you look at the type of violations of rights that are occurring in countries like the Dominican Republic, Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, you would come to conclude that what we face in this country is a walk in the park. You know, because what's really happening in many of our countries is simply horrible. And very often governments simply say, well, the problem is we haven't gotten around to put into place an immigration policy. In part, that is true, but in part, governments in Latin America, including Mexico, are simply taking advice, you know, from some of our own very politicians in the U.S. who are basically telling them, look, you have to stop whoever is coming through your countries if you ever want to have a good relationship with us. And that's what we see playing out, you know, in a lot of these uh, policies. Now, I'm going to shut up now. There are lots of things I didn't say because I don't want to abuse uh, your patience. I haven't even touched on remittances and what do they mean. I haven't talked talk at all about why is it that people keep living, even though we are told that Latin America is doing great. I mean, I read an article just about 10 days ago in the USA Today, which is a pretty lousy newspaper altogether, but sometimes <laughs> it does have interesting things. But I was blown away to see an article that said that Mexico is like flourishing. You know, Mexico is paradise. And I had just been in Mexico. You know, not at all the kind of Mexico I saw. But I hope that you will ask, you know, some of that. Uh, and, and I thank you for your patience and attention. <laughs> to this day, anybody who is born in the United States of America is a U.S. citizen. Okay? Everybody. I believe that there are people who dream of the day in which that will no longer be true. And they have attempted to do this. Back in 1996, you know, a congressman by last name Gallagly from California actually tried, you know, to stick into the immigration reform law of 1996, a provision that would deny citizenship to children born in the U.S. of undocumented parents. So the notion that immigrants are a financial burden, you know, for the country in my opinion, follows two logics. You know, one is eventually convince the rest of the population that yes, they are such a burden that we somehow need to disenfranchise them altogether. But the second thing is it keeps us distracted. You know, I always tell people who says to me in debates, no, but those illegal aliens, you know, are absolutely ripping off, you know, our healthcare system. And I say, what healthcare system? You know, there are 50 million people in this country who do not have health insurance. Is that something we can possibly blame, you know, on so-called illegal aliens? And by the way, on the illegal alien question, there is a fabulous book that I always recommend from somebody who I believe when she wrote it was professor here, uh, May Nye. It's actually called Impossible Subjects. It's a fabulous chronic of how we meaning the United States government, our policymakers, created the conditions so that there is a so-called illegal alien. If we had had smarter, much wiser, much forward-looking policymakers all along the past 40 years, we wouldn't have illegal aliens in this country. If we have them, it's only because we created a huge bottleneck to make sure that we had these 10, 12, 15 million people who we pejoratively call illegal. Rem remember that there is no such a thing as an illegal human being. There may be an illegal act, I mean, in terms of entering into the United States of America, but once people have gone through that moment, there is no such a thing as an illegal person, an illegal human being. No human being is illegal. So I hope I answered. Well, uh, let me quickly touch on the question of elections. I, I was just in Mexico, and it doesn't matter what I try to address, especially in interacting with uh, the media. All they wanted to talk about was Barack Obama, the elections, Hillary Clinton, John you know, uh, uh, McCain, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm kind of fresh with these ideas. Uh, f first of all, let me just 
share with you the fact that there is a, a research institution in this country called the Pew Hispanic Center. They have excellent uh, information that you can certainly go download and really become experts, you know, on the so-called Latino vote. Um, but, and, and I'm going to basically quote, I mean, some of that information uh, regarding these issues. First of all, I mean, I think it is important to realize that the Latino presence in this country, which numbers, I mean, we, we are somewhere between 45, 45 and 50 million people in the U.S. today, in real terms. I mean, the, the census would say about 46, but somewhere between 45 and 50 million people. Of that universe, about 18 million are people who are citizens of 18 years of age or older. That means people who are part of the universe that we call the eligible voters in the US. Now, of those 18 million people, about um, 4.7 million are actually immigrants. You know, they, they, they are people who weren't born, you know, in the US. And then you also have another similar amount, about four or so million people who are the children of immigrants. So altogether, you know, we have about eight, nine million people who are either immigrant themselves or children of immigrants. And let's recognize one thing. I mean, when we came to this country, we did not come, you know, with a large, rich experience of practicing democracy. Okay? Because most of us have come from countries where we live in sham, you know, democracies. I mean, democracies that are really funny. I mean, you know, because it doesn't matter how people vote. The history has been that one, you know, that doesn't matter what people vote. Who gets elected is a different story, you know. So I think it's, it's important to realize that we are speaking about a social group, in this case of voters, that are fairly new. I mean, and it's hard to really make any decisive judgments about how we vote. What I would agree with you about is that these particular uh, uh, Latino voters uh, in this country should take the opportunity to not only be told who should we vote for, you know, be enticed to vote for this or the other, but be thinking about what kind of solutions can we propose above and beyond immigration policy questions, because let's face it, the majority of people who are Latinos, Latino voters in this country, are not driven just by immigration. You know, we are driven by education, we are driven by healthcare, we are driven by very basic economic issues like jobs and wages. You know, those are the issues that concern us. And those are the issues that concern almost everyone else. I would say that immigration is, is the one issue that we are fairly passionate about, but doesn't mean that that's the only issue that is of concern to us. And, and one thing that I do want to also say, even though that's not necessarily what you ask, there has been a lot of news lately, essentially suggesting that Latino voters would not vote for a black candidate. And that's bullshit. I mean, because if you look at the history, if you go and look at how David Dinkins got elected in New York City, if you go and look at the campaigns of Tom Bradley in Los Angeles, Harold Washington in Chicago, Ron Dellums in Oakland, it's not true. Latinos have voted overwhelmingly, you know, for black candidates at the local level. And I think that the way things are going right now with the Barack Obama campaign, I mean, we are about to see what's going to happen in Texas. But, you know, just judging for the, from the last uh, set of uh, uh, primaries and caucuses, I mean, clearly, Latinos are not indeed, you know, opposed to this or that person based on matters of color. And let me just say, that's not to say that Latinos don't have serious problems when it comes to racial prejudice. And I mean specifically Latino immigrants. You know, because do, do not forget that we come from a political heritage of having been for many years colonies of white European powers as well. And that has shaped, you know, the way we think 
in ways that are really terrible and we need to fix. For example, people don't seem to ever realize that we have about 100 million Afro-Latinos in the Western Hemisphere. And I'm not talking about North America, I'm talking about from Mexico South. People don't realize that we have a large percentage of population that are indigenous populations. And sometimes we don't even count them. We don't even speak of them as if they were us. And that's us. But with that said, I'm just telling you, I mean, it, it's not true. I mean, that we are pretty negatively predisposed one way or the other regarding a given candidate. Well, um, transnationalism, believe it or not, is not so new, okay? That's the first thing I always like to remind people. Uh, transnationalism has been practiced in different ways over the last 30, 40 years, especially between the US and Latin America. Now, what is new is that over the last 20 or so years, the number of Mexican organizations made up of people from the same place of origin in Mexico has really grown in numbers, okay? And by and large, those organizations known as hometown associations, and Mexicans call them just clubs or clubs, um, those entities, essentially, th those organizations that are very basic, I mean, they are volunteer-driven organizations, and they come together to fundraise so that they can actually help improve, even in minimum ways, you know, the ways of life in their places of origin. By and large, they are engaged in advancing, basically, social projects, you know, back home meaning uh, they have been involved in repairing, you know, the church, improving the plaza in the community, uh, paving the roads in the community, putting electrical uh, lights around the, the plaza, things like that, okay? Building a water spring, potable water available to the community, things like that. More recently, there has been a lot of talk about the so-called productive projects you know, that these communities should be supporting. In reality, it's more a myth than it is reality, okay? Because uh, if you really go and look at what exactly is it that these Mexican hometown associations are funding by way of economic projects back in Mexico, as I said, the evidence is very small in as far as what they are doing. What is interesting, though, and this is something in which the organization I, I lead, because we, we are made up, actually, of several Mexican hometown federations. I would argue that the largest Mexican hometown federations in the U.S. are members of NAILAC. For example, here in Chicago, the Confederation of Mexican Hometown Associations, CONFEMEX, is a founding member of NAILAC. The Zacatecano Federation of Southern California, the Jalisco Federation of Southern California, just the two of them alone, have many more, you know, community, I mean, uh, members than everyone else together, you know, just because they are the largest. And, and what we are beginning to pioneer is the importance of looking beyond questions of funding projects in Mexico. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Social Development Secretariat, you know, in Mexico. It's a body of the Mexican government which is equipped on a yearly basis with about $555 million in budget, okay? Roughly. I, I hope I'm translating this correct. It's 55 mil millones de pesos. So I think that's about $555 uh, million, roughly. Now, of that, only 33 million dollars are actually going to uh, so-called tres por uno projects, so three for one you know, projects, which is the matching program that the Mexican government has. And of that universe, less than 10% is going to so-called economic projects. So in reality, if you just focus on, on the economic uh, projects bound by tres por uno, you're really missing the picture, you know, because there is a much bigger universe in terms of budgetary priorities 
and in terms of other secretariats, I mean, of the Mexican government, that we should be looking at. And, and, and some, someone may ask, but why should they do that? Well, let me give you an example. The value-added tax in Mexico is 15%. Last year, Mexicans abroad sent back home about $25 billion in remittances. Now, let's for a minute assume that only half of the $25 billion actually translated into expenses for which value-added tax was charged. That's about $3 billion in revenues received by the Mexican federal government. And who's accounting for that? You know, so my organization is in the business of having groups continue to do their projects, which I don't have any problem with. I think it's necessary for them to do it but at the same time begin to focus more strategically on questions of economic policy, including tax policy, that are far more likely to have a larger impact in terms of whether Mexicans come to a point in which migration may become a luxury, but not necessarily a need, you know, in order to have a decent way of life. That's, that's at least what we believe. Okay? Anything else or are we done? We, uh, we have a, uh, a reception outside, so there will be a further opportunity for you to uh, uh, converse with Oscar and continue this conversation. But uh, for now, uh, I'll, uh, join me in thanking him for a very stimulating presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.